well, that this defines the, the tool, right? So what, what is money? But coming back to the present day and how that relates to financial independence. So I think having the conversation of understanding what it is and how people interact with it is crucial nowadays because nowadays, because it's so embedded in society, pe- people just take it at face value. You get this piece of paper and you can buy stuff with it, but not under as understanding the dynamics underneath it is quite different. Good evening, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to a brand new edition of Social Convos. This is part two of a non-guest episode. Basically, we did an episode last week, and we're continuing with a different topic. Diego, how are you doing today? Well, I'm doing all right, but I wouldn't necessarily say different. I'd say a continuation, because I think they go hand hand in hand. We talked about entrepreneurship last year and the dream of, you know, working for yourself. And that usually goes paired with earning enough for yourself to be able to live for you, provide for yourself. And then comes the question, what is money? And what oftentimes people want to reach is financial independence. So I thought in this episode, it would be interesting to focus on that part. And first of all, defining what is money and what does financial independence actually mean? What does it mean for people in different stages of their life? When is enough enough? But before we start with that, remember, if you follow us on YouTube, subscribe to the channel and give us a like. And we're also on Instagram at Confos, C-O-N-F-O-E-S. And check out the latest published episodes on our website, Confos.com. So, Jean-Luc, what is money? So I'm the last person you should ask about what money is. Because I don't really, I've learned that I really don't care as much about money. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out why that is. But I think it's also partially because I've been raised with the importance of generational wealth over getting rich quick. So I think so, that's the starting point for me. Okay, you, you and, mentioned generational yeah. wealth versus getting rich quick. So let's let's yeah. make our definition. So we decided to, just like last week, we defined entrepreneurship, right? In, in different yes. contexts. So yeah. let's break it down because money okay. is associated to, to generational wealth to a certain degree, right? Okay, so can you to a certain degree. Contextualize okay, so that relationship for us in your definition of money and generational wealth? Okay, so I'm not rich. That's I think that's one of the things that people often don't understand. Like a lot of people, even beggars on the street, think I have money in overflow and my bank accounts are in the seven, eight figures, while in reality, often they're not. None of my bank accounts goes to a mount higher 
than the worth of my NFT collection, for instance, weirdly enough. So, so I think that's one of the things. So when it comes to like, like cash, like showing that you're rich, like having a lot of cash available, I'm definitely not rich, but I am to many people's definition, especially in, in a developing country as Suriname, I'm quite wealthy in the sense that I have my own home. I have my own car. I have my own roof above my head. And I'm able to fully provide for my family together with my wife. So I think like there aren't things that we need as a necessity that we're not able to afford. We're able to go on vacation when we want to go on vacation. But that's not necessarily because we have a lot of money. So I'm hoping that kind of starts defining the difference between wealth and, and being being rich. So I won't don't have a lot of money, but if I have to need my money work for me in a way that I have to afford something, which is necessary for my lifestyle, I'm able to do it without going into great depth because I think that's also important. So I don't have any personal debt at, at banks. I don't have student debt. I don't have debt or loans on my personal name at any bank. So I think that's already a kind of a, much of a difference. So if we abstract that, so you define rich and being able to provide for your family, be having the ability, the freedom to go on vacation, and you don't need a lot of money. You don't need to be rich, as you just said. So, if you abstract that into a definition of money, what is money then? If it is, because money does not mean rich, right? So, what is it? Yeah. So, I mean, that makes it difficult for me because, again, I'm. I, I would rather defer to you to answer that question because, again, I'm not familiar with money. I don't. So value that's the money as much as no. That, that, that's the interesting part. It's it's not about valuing money. I think, but if you're having a conversation about money, financial independence, having the freedom, relating back to the previous episode on our entrepreneurship, yeah, it is important for people to grasp and define for themselves, like what is it actually? Money is not rich, but what is it? Because you said. It gives you the ability. You don't need a lot of it, but it gives you a ability to certain freedoms. So if you want to go really like back in history, it, it has a, how would you call it? It has a trade value, but I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm not, I forgot the word that they use for it. So I'm really curious what which what your definition is going to be. So let's let's pivot it to you for a second, because you're the one that's more interested in in understanding how money works. So give us a, a quick breakdown of what the definition of of money is for you, and how do you feel that money? What's the role of of money in society for you? So on a fundamental level, it's basically a unit of account. It's a tool to facilitate trade between individuals, people, societies. So, 
So yes. the word I was looking for, is it a commodity? Is, is money in essence a commodity or not? Okay, what's a commodity? Something you use. Something you use, something you, tr- you could use and you can trade it for another commodity. Like a, a commodity would be like rice, like something yeah. you, you consume, yeah. gold, something you can use in production. Whereas I won't place money under the category of commodity. Anything can be used as money, basically. Money is just the agreement to use that as a tool to transact as a reference model so that both parties agree upon the perceived value of the thing they're trading. Because you can't really say, I have my OnePlus phone here and I want to trade it for your headphones. Like, it's kind of hard to break that down into actual materials, into the actual commodities that go into making this product, like the, the glass that goes into it, the electronics that goes into it. So money is just a tool to abstract that into a unit of account, into a representation of value so we could trade. So it's a representation of value, right? That, yeah. that would be the best definition. Money is a representation of value. And it, so should, how, and it yeah. should abide by certain properties to make it more recognized, agreeable, so people can accept it. So if I, if I quickly think, we've discussed this in earlier episodes, I think, but also in the sub-podcast we did, the, the Dutch podcast we did, 21 BTC, and that goes deeper into the definition of money. But basically, the properties of money, it should be one, recognized, so people should accept it. It should be divisible, so it should be able to go into smaller pieces so that I don't have to break this okay, phone into yes, pieces. Makes sense. It should be durable, so it should last over time. It's not that I put it out in the rain and it deteriorates. It should be portable. It's not that I need to lug okay. out like five kilos of <laughs> this whatever commodity we're using, five kilos of glass every time I want to go buy a piece of bread. And it should be uniform so that the one piece basically fungible. Uh, you know you know all about fungibility. So yeah, one piece so. can be tradable, tradable okay. uh, to another thing. And it should be basically acceptable. So those are the most important properties, I think, thinking out loud. Yeah, but you've discussed the properties, right? Yeah. And now I want to know, like, who decides the value? The value is, is value decided? The value is decided on the, the traders, the people that exchange. So, and value is different to each, to each individual. So if we simplify a society to two people, yeah, and maybe a, a small community of five people, and you think you can do more with my phone, but I, I want that exclusive experience from your headphones. So I value the quality of sound to be able to listen, experience music to a higher degree than be able to scroll on Instagram. So that would be, it's a bit extreme, but that would constitute to a higher degree of value. So value is very subjective to the individual. But because you can abstracate it to a unit of account, and as you have more individuals in society to trade, it gets decided on the market because you don't need to think 
I need to find someone who wants to buy my glasses for this, whatever they so do, it's, this rush. It's like there's a general understanding that everybody agrees upon the price in Asim. They don't per se agree on the price, but as you get more transactions, you have a better point of reference of, all right, so because this is in less supply or this is in less demand, it should be quote-unquote worth less than the other thing. But maybe if it's high value for you, that's a good deal for you. So the, the price and value are not the same. So in the past, and I'm talking about centuries ago, there was a trade going and there were different kind of commodities being used as a method of payment. So yeah, these are so like the predecessors of, of basically the, the barter period. And yes, you could define that as money, but they were lacking in certain properties, properties which is why they didn't. Oh, yes, last. of course, of course, fair yeah. enough. So, in, in the definition that you gave and the properties, they wouldn't be considered money. So, when, when did it really start money becoming like according to the properties? When, when could you give a, like an indication of what time in history? Money became a thing. So there's no set time in history, but if you look at the history of the evolution of money from the barter trade to, you know, using commodities, using glass beads, using just bartering to precious metals, copper coins, silver coins, gold coins, eventually every society or most societies in the past kind of gravitated to gold and silver to a lesser degree. And because that was very hard to duplicate, replicate, or quote-unquote, it was more scarce. It was harder to create more of. So you couldn't suddenly increase the supply that, and, and devalue it. Is that to make sure, is that to avoid inflation already at that early point in time? Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah. Basically, okay. it, 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 inflation is just you know, inflating something becomes bigger, the quantity becomes larger. So if you go back in, I think, the tribes in certain parts of Africa used to use glass beads before the Europeans came. And because it was so hard to create for them, it had high value, right? So they oh. could store their value there within that okay, because... small community. But as the Europeans, I think it was the French, started invading and they had a method to produce grass, glass very cheaply, they could basically come into that community and just inflate the supply of the money, which was glass, and basically control the whole market there. So that kind of eliminated the use case of glass as money after the introduction of glass by the Europeans. The, the thing that I'm actually wondering is, like, if, if the way money is structured now, if you're the bigger party or person within a group of people within society and you're able to accumulate more money, basically you get to decide the price of no. the certain currencies. What, what, what is missed in that thought perception or that idea that there's no way for, for instance, smaller countries to, to have a strong currency? 
Okay, so split, repeat that again specifically because you started off with something different of one person deciding and then you transition to a conference. So, yeah, I, I tried to make it easy, but like, let's get it on a, a national currency level. And for nations which have a small economy, how could nations with a small economy be able to provide a national currency that rivals the rest of the world? For instance, I don't know if I remember correctly, but I think the Latvian let is stronger than the euro and the US. I know, I'm not sure if it's still the case, but it used to be like that. In what context do you mean stronger? So like this is like... As in like one unit is worth more. So basically the exchange rate of one unit to the yeah, other the exchange unit. Rate. So you could argue, you talk about national currencies being able to rival that on a superpower, which is maybe far-fetched. But if you look at the currency exchange rates, as you just mentioned, take Somalia, for example. Somalia is basically an anarchy. There is like the division of government there. There is basically no proper government. Yet their currency, the Somalian shilling, is over time is worth more dollar than the US dollar because of all that anarchy. There was no government to inflate, print more Somalians to where there was a big supply within that community. However, it can't rival other countries as a superpower. In local context, it's stronger, but it can't rival other countries because it is not recognized or acceptable in other areas of the world. So that's the, the, the drawback there. So yes, a national currency, I think, can be strong if it's just not inflated at a rapid rate. But then there, there's more like complexities that goes into that, if that clarifies it a bit. Okay, so but now we've moved from kind of the situation where it was just commodities and it was basically trade and bartered towards actual currencies and the first ones being the metals like silver and gold. How did we get to national currencies and why did we get national currencies? National currencies, basically, how did you get nation states at, at first, right? So that, that's the first question you, you, you need to pose before going to currency. Basically, an, an, a national, a nation state is a community at large defined by official borders. So that's another construct of agreed upon, yeah, agreed, agreed upon rules that people made. And within that community, within those boundaries, you need a unit of exchange to be able to trade. So looking at a small village, they created a unit of exchange with water maybe. And as that village grows to a city, they need a unit of exchange to be able to facilitate, facilitate trade. And as you grow and there's another city popping up in other areas of the world, you need to be able to trade with the, that other city. So those cities need to be able to agree upon a unit of exchange to be able to trade with each other. Are they going to use the same thing or do they use their own thing? So within a localized community, in this case, a country, 
you can have your own currency. But if you need to trade with something else, you need something else to make sure that both cities or nations agree upon the value that one nation cannot manipulate the value. So it's kind of like they remove that trust from each other. So that's where gold came, came into play. That's where silver came into play because as history has shown, those who are kind of equally hard to get for them compared to glass, for example. So what do you think is the oldest and most traded currency in the world? Do you have any idea? Because I just, I just looked it up, just out of, of curiosity. Oldest and most traded, that is hard. Like gold has been, every over time has, you know, surfaced as the commodity, as the base. But yeah. basically the coins, the currencies are based on the metal. So if, if you look at history again, like mm-hmm. one that lasted the longest, a few centuries, was the Byzantine dinar. That was yeah. in the, the, the Middle East. Basically, they outlasted the Roman Empire, where, whereas the Roman Empire inflated everything. The Byzantine dinar kind of lasted some centuries. And you could still find some so in the black markets. Over fifteen, over 2,500 years ago, there, was already, there were already currencies. There was already trade with actual currencies, right? I, I'd say the time of the Romans, even the time of the Romans, yeah. there, there definitely was already. I'd say since you get some form, formalized societies, formalized civilization with structure, that's when, when you already have evolution of currency. So does, okay. does, does that clarify what is money? Well, that this defines the, the tool, right? So what, what is money? But coming back to the present day and how that relates to financial independence. So I think having the conversation of understanding what it is and how people interact with it is crucial nowadays because nowadays, because it's so embedded in society, people just take it at face value. You get this piece of paper and you can buy stuff with it, but not under as understanding the dynamics underneath it is quite different. So the two of us could agree on for exchange, we're going to use, you know, just doing things for each other as a form of payment or yeah, you're going to send me satoshis. Maybe I have a lot of, you know, tomato fruits in my garden and you, and we could use that as currency. Again, that's not going to last. It's not durable. <laughs> you need to use it, but we could agree upon something to trade within, between us in, in a smaller community. So, and I think this is the discussion that I had with my team recently. I think for them, especially for a younger generation, it's, they would prefer the money. Yeah, you told me about it. You did the marshmallow with the test, money, right? Yeah, with the money, you can actually, you can purchase anything you want. From technically speaking, not fully, but at least when you have the money, you can yeah, decide it, for yourself what you're going to spend it on. Whereas with trade, you would need you need to, to find, find a specific person at a specific time at a specific yes. place. It, it, it needs to intertwine time, space, and need need to align perfectly that Venn diagram. Yeah. And for me, it's just going to go to waste. So if I have cash, I'm more likely to give somebody a tip who really worked hard or help out somebody who's homeless with the money 
instead of spending it on, on something that I would value because if I can trade for something I could I value and I don't have to pay money, I would actually prefer that. So I think it's a really interesting dynamic and to see how currencies have kind of always been there. Money is definitely not a new concept. But it feels like as information grows and there's more and more information and I think we're now in the age where finally people are able to understand like, hey, if I really, if my main focus is just the money, there are several ways I can get that. So I have a question for you. Even though you say you don't understand or think about it too much, but looking at it from your domain of expertise as in social media, the spreading of information. If you look at at history, because those money principles were instilled in kind of isolated, yeah, that's kind of extreme, but you get the point, right? Isolated societies, basically the speed at which information spread wasn't fast enough. So you, you had bigger arbitrage and leverage there to trade. And as the internet came about, as social media came about, do you feel like the understanding of money has become less or increased because of that increase in social media? I would, I would hardly, like, if you would ask, like, has, social, has, has financial literacy grown? So if, if you would to ask someone the simple question, what is money? Would they be able to articulate it, what it is? Or just say, I don't know because I don't, I'm not able to articulate it for myself. So I find it a very, very loaded question because what is money? Yeah, this, this is a bill. This is a, a 10, 10 US dollar bill. That's money. But like, that's interesting, right? It's such a simple question, like with three yeah. letters, and people have a yeah. complicated time saying what it is. Well, it's something you can buy stuff with. Basically, yeah. that's, that's the main principle. So coming back to that, because if you look at the recent situation the world has gone through after the pandemic and rising inflation rates, and people see like they can buy less with that amount of money. So how do you think or how do you see, how do you feel that people respond to that? I think think we're getting into a generation that is extremely... I wouldn't say money-driven, but efficient and not wanting to waste time because in the past, you could get people, convince them with niceties, like, hey, these are benefits that make it worth it, it accepting less money. And what I'm noticing more and more is like, yeah, we don't care about that. We just want to wanna see the money. So... And, Let's, let's give you an example. I think the first example is drop shipping. Like there's a whole generation of people doing drop shipping. And technically they're entrepreneurs. And often they do a much better job of providing products to a broader audience than like the mainstream stores do. Because here's the thing. If you're a big mainstream store and you import from certain countries and you have deals for certain like must needs products, you're just gonna take the deal. Whether it's a little bit cheaper or a little bit more expensive, you have a good connection. So as part of the deal, 
to kind of also take a shipments of products that are very generic. So then all of a sudden the drop shipping industry comes and that much less in developing countries than in the Western world. And these drop shipping companies basically they take away the leverage that the bigger companies had because they're straight to the market. So they don't have these huge profit gaps on generic products. So all of a sudden, these drop shippers, basically, they can take a big portion of the market. And even if they take like 0.05%, for them as an individual, as a small drop shipping company, that's already a very huge profit. So they don't need as much of the market as the big companies do. So I think that's a, that's an interesting part. But then well, recently, I, I'm going to give another example where it's just... Before you go driven. to the second e- yeah? example, on, on the concept of drop shipping, because well, you compare it like an individual drop shipping to a, like, a bigger retailer, a bigger company. And whereas the... the you also described the profit margins, but also looking at the expenses, the operation cost for the drop shipper is significantly lower as well. So he can get away. Yeah, the operating expenses definitely like there's he, much less overhead. He can get like away with, with, with those margins, right? Yeah. Yeah. So now that's the other thing to 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 think about when when you're running a business. Coming back to last week's episode on entrepreneurship, like. What's the trade-offs and like how relevant are, because it, it's, it's funny because in, in the other podcast, we had this discussion specifically on a fixed supply society with money, but how does that relate to business? Like one of the arguments was numbers should go up. Your business should do more revenue. Your business should do more profit. Like in a, how, how do you relate that to business? Yes, yeah, so go, go on with your second example. No, no, I, I think that's that should that's another segue that we should definitely drive in. The second one is faceless YouTube channels, like doing full on YouTube automation, right? You can go and take videos of Gary Vaynerchuk, of Andrew Tate. Not only uh, faceless, <laughs> like yeah, your voice. I've yeah, seen even like it's it's like, and then there's a difference between like cold fusion who really puts research into it, right? And just yeah. speech and just channels that basically they help out the big names in the business because technically they're giving those big names free free publicity, like free extra exposure because they're, they're cutting out clips from like these already famous YouTubers and making it into short content. But then again, they're making a lot of money as well from just advertising on these videos. Like that's, that's a pretty solid business. The question that I always have with those businesses, and then I came to a realization as well. The question that I always had, like, okay, but what do you gain from it aside from earning a lot of money? Mm. And there are two things that came up. One, the skill set that you developed. If you ever were to decide to go into a corporate business ever again, you would have a skill set and understand algorithms and, and, and viewership better than almost anyone in any marketing department right now. Yeah. Like it's, it's a dedicated craft. Like understanding how dropshipping works, understanding how Facebook YouTube channels work, it's a craft. 
and and that craft is maybe even worth more than they're earning as solopreneurs than they realize. It's really they could earn like what they're asking for a video. They could earn that ask that for a consulting session. But then again, they haven't skilled themselves necessarily. Uh, some of them have, and and those that have also say like, hey, listen. I'm actually making more money with my consulting agency than with my YouTube mm. channel. But so that was the first. And I come from a generation where it's important to say like, hey, I want to feel like I've changed the world. I've done something for the world. Impact. To make it better. Like an impact. For them, that's not important at all. Like I understand that some of them get confronted that they're actually a millionaire, but they walk around on the street and nobody cares who they are and nobody recognizes them. Whereas they would love to have the situation where they would walk on the street and people would be in awe or actually respect them for the work that they do, which is the recognition they won't get, especially if you're dropshipping or in the nameless YouTube business. It's, you're not going to be recognized on the street and you're not going to get the allure that somebody who uses their face is. Recognition for impact? Okay. Okay. So, and then, then, then my revelation came like, but probably some of them don't even want that either. Yeah, exactly. Like, why would you want that? Like, I mean, you're earning a lot from these businesses. Why would you need to show your face? I, you mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. And it makes me think different about money as well, because I can't imagine working and earning a living just from, from th- that kind of business. Because for me personally, I don't find any enjoyment in it. But in this generation, some of them just find enjoyment of making a lot of money. So why shouldn't they? Like a perfect example here is Graham Stephan, right? His, his whole YouTube channel is curated on one, the, the, the financial literacy, but also the frugality that goes into it, the lifestyle that goes into it. Yeah. And he also explains it like, his daily schedule is planning for videos and basically optimizing, beating the algorithm to a yeah, certain degree. But that's, that's the influence of Mr. Beast. Like you, you, can, you can't move away from how Mr. Beast has impacted like the current yeah. field of YouTubers. So that, there we go into impact, right? Because yeah. Mr. Beast makes loads of money, but some videos go into the negative for production. Because he doesn't value the money. He doesn't value yeah, money either. No. Yeah. It goes into the impact. So there, there you have a different relationship. And even though you don't have that necessarily value, the drivenness of the money, but the impact it has on other channels, on the whole industry, on people that participate in his crazy projects, it's tremendous. So here's, here's one of the things that people don't recognize and, and don't even realize. Like when, when Jimmy talks about like how he got started into YouTube and he has a friend group. And, and so that's the thing. And that's, some, that's a trend that a lot of people don't realize. When we get to the bigger names in a business, and I had this revelation during a conversation that I had with Seth King. So... I started realizing that whenever Seth King spoke about the brand King, 
And for those of you who are not familiar, Zach King is the is the basically the online magician, the one of the most famous online magicians because he makes videos where he makes kind of online magic in those videos. And whenever he spoke about a brand, Zach King, which is his name, he spoke with we and not with I. So that's already like a major difference. And that's something that goes for a lot, not all of them, like PewDiePie is, is, a, is an example where it's, well, he does have the, his editor, but it's not a whole team. But often these kind of big YouTubers, they have a team. And all those people on that team used to be creators. And they brainstorm for hours. Like the example that, that Mr. Beast gives is that they would start a Zoom, or I'm not sure if it was a Zoom call, but they would start a call in the morning and would discuss things on how they could approach things differently. And the call would end late in the evening. So basically, they were, even if they were not together, they were kind of in the same room for a full day, just discussing like, okay, how does the algorithm work? How can we improve things? What can we test? How can we optimize? And that's the whole reason why the Mr. Beast videos are so over-the-top successful. Because now at this point, he's, he went from weekly videos to monthly videos, and it's just yeah. one video per month. But the it's amount of investment... Maximum impact. It's, it's fully for maximum impact. And that's why all of them go, go, go viral. It's, it's just that, but that's, but also people don't realize that he's been doing this for 10 years. I think that's, that's one yeah. of the things that people so, underestimate. One of the other things that comes up, as you mentioned, he's been doing it for 10 years in having the conversation on what is money is understanding what time preference is, is understanding what, as you said, you did the marshmallow test with your teammates. Okay, you have to explain what a marshmallow test is and then the time difference. Both, both, both subjects, you should quickly, yeah. quickly. So for, basically, for non-financially non educated people like myself, please, please explain. This has actually nothing or very little to do with the financial education and more about personal desire and needs so you can even relate but it's this still to financial education yeah so you can even relate yeah. this to habits so time preference is wanting something now versus wanting it in five years and the marshmallow test was a test conceived to experience to experiment like how people with different time preferences kind of react or how they you know deal with certain things like money or saving or spending or just habits in general. So the marshmallow test is basically they gave kids two options. Like one, you can have the marshmallow now or not take it now, but after a week or after a few hours, you'll have two or three. So can you delay that need for immediate consumption, that need for immediate gratification just to have more of it later so you can enjoy more of it later? So that comes to if you look at the consumption of social media as well, a lot of people now have a high time preference, meaning they want instant gratification. As you said, like they want the money now to be able to spend it immediately. 
whereas a lower time preference society or people, and this is, for example, the, the Japanese are a prime example of that. They're a society of savers. They, they save, they work hard, and they delay their gratification to even later generations so their kids can have, have a better life. So that's the understanding of time preference. And how that relates to money is basically if you have a lower time preference, you save, meaning you don't spend as much and you kind of want to contain or sustain that value as we discussed in the beginning, that money is just a representation of value and you want that value to stay at least the same over time, over a long period, not that the tomato rots or something. So that when you want something, you have that stored energy, that stored work that you did for that money and you can use it later. So that's a, a lower time preference. So that's the concept of time preference and the example of the marshmallow test. But then you get into inflation. Yeah. So does it make sense to have a, a so it comes to a slower time preference or saying like, how, how do you deal with inflation in those situations? So that, that's, that's the, the million dollar question, right? What is money and how do you deal with inflation? Yeah. So what the Because educated, if the inflation is yeah. higher than the interest, it doesn't so make any sense. What for the educated people do, the financially educated, because they understand what money is and, and how inflation impacts their purchasing power, their stored value, they try to convert it into something that maintains that value that has a, that lasts over time, that has a better saleability, basically. So they're either put it in commodities like precious metals or in real estate, but then you remove certain properties, right, from money because you can't use the property you own to pay for little things. You can't do one square meter of that property as a payment. You, you can't even transport that property to bring it to the store as payment, right? So that, that eliminates that use case of property can't be money, but it can, if you have a long, a low time preference, you can store temporarily your, your hard earned value in that. So that's what a lot of people do to kind of circumvent inflation. But the people that don't or the people that are forced into, you know, spending or don't have that excess kind of spend as they get it in because they want to spend it as much as possible before it loses more value. So they try to get something of better value. So I'm going to get that new phone because they value that phone yeah. more, but that is paired with it. High time preference. They want the gratification immediately. So, in the sense of a low time preference, right? What's the craziest practical investment? And not need necessarily that it was done as an investment, but in the end, you're like, wow, that's something that somebody did in the past, which became really beneficial or made it a lot cheaper in a later period. I, I really can't come up with an immediate example of like, in, in, give, give me some more context with, with what you Okay, so crazy. I'm, I'm going to give you the yeah. best one that I have. In 1996, my parents took me to Disneyland. Yes. Okay. 
And my dad purchased a multiple visit pass on which we could visit, I think, five times. Right. And that pass was guaranteed lifetime. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine what Disney World's in dollars, US dollars would cost in 1996 and what a day pass for the same experience costs now. Yeah, so I think now it's like around two hundred dollars or something. Because when I went like five, six years ago, yeah. I think it was one fifty, something like that. Yeah, how much was it in ninety six? Do you remember? I have no idea, but, but I yeah, think com- coming back to you, no, the five visits, the five visits in itself were cheaper in total than just one day visit. In, in were cheaper day. in U.S. dollars. A couple value. of years ago, I went with my with. With your dear value. Yeah, and US dollar value. And a couple of years ago, we went with my parents and my and our family, so my wife and my kids, we went to Disney World. And we still had like, I think three or four oh, vouchers so in those, available. What, 30 years, 20, 25 years, basically, you only you yeah. used it twice. He kept it. Yeah. No, they had like, so it was five for, I think it was like three for me, three for my dad, three for my mom, something like that. Some yeah. kind of, so there were 12 day pass and we, we used half of it, right? a little over half of it. We went to Epcot and to, I think we went to a three or four different, and in 96, we went to three or, three or okay, four. Okay, so you, you guys still had that, yeah. And we still had like three or four day passes left on on the on the ticket and my dad kept it for yeah 25 years and then we were able to reimburse those tickets for new ones for free ah. because they were lifetime yeah passes to disney world that's an interesting basically example of low time preference but also it's a specific use case right because you couldn't use yeah it's a very big use case yeah. because I could have gone for poster stamps because my family is big on yeah. at least my mom's side of the family is big on post stamps like like perfect condition post stamps but like that has a very low use case it's like okay these are worth a lot but you can't actually practically use them Exactly. But in the so case of the Disney acceptable. tickets, in the case of the Disney, I was first of all I was in awe that my dad kept them for twenty. That is very years, amazing, right? <laughs> and he was like, and I was like, Dad, I'm sure this is not gonna work. He was like, No, no, no. That it says it. It's lifetime, so it's lifetime, and they're gonna they keep need to honor work. it. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we did have to drive to figure out where we could reimburse them because, of course, they, you couldn't use those ones at the gate anymore. But there was a place that you could go to and actually get a reimbursed and you don't have to pay extra data to give you the day tickets for, for those different. So that's, it's, I mean, it was a very interesting use case of seeing that buying something like it was kind of like how you can like store cans. Like, yeah, you, you uh, stored that option, yeah. right? You stored you, that you option sto- actually, to be able yeah. to go into Disney World for years later. Yeah. With your, but, with your grandchildren. I mean, yeah. But Who then, comes up with this stuff? There, there, there was also, you know, that risk that 
you didn't know 25 years ago when you went to Disney back then that Disney would still exist, maybe that the theme park. Oh yeah, he no, he knew, he knew. No, and and that's that's also with the timeshare. Like yeah, but it's kind of similar to, and that's that's the kind of things that he's interested in. I to a much lesser extent than him, but he's interested in getting a timeshare from just a hotel just starting out to becoming one of the biggest hotels in, in Barbados. And like the timeshare being worth much, much, much more now, if you would want to get the same timeshare now. I think I'm missing it. What, what do you mean a timeshare? Timeshare. So basically a timeshare is where you kind of, you purchase a timeshare property. What, what does that connect, mean? When you okay, purchase a timeshare time is basically property. you purchase one or two weeks, or you can even do it by the day, but in the, the traditional sense, timeshares are either a one-week timeshare or two-week timeshare, where you basically partly own an apartment or a hotel room from a certain chain, mm-hmm. whether it's a hotel chain or a resort chain, and they're all kind of connected to, I think there are three or four big ones that are worldwide. And basically, you just pay, you just pay for two weeks or one week or two weeks a year, you kind of own that apartment. Mm -hmm. So you can go there every year for a week or two, for a week or two weeks, and that apartment is yours. Or you can exchange that apartment or hotel room for another apartment or another hotel room in another country owned by the same time-sharing company. So it's... It is within one ecosystem, right? So coming yeah. back to the concept of money, that is a quote-unquote currency used within that ecosystem that you can yeah. exchange one thing. So that's the punchability yeah. because it's within the same chain. You can transfer from one room to another room. So, so you can exchange is- this and you can basically, wherever you are in the world, that they have those resorts or similar resorts that are connected to the the timeshare brand, you can just exchange your room and you can get it at a rate that's much lower than the, the usual rate. So that comes back to the definition of money we had in the beginning, right? Why I believe it is important to ask this question and kind of have conversation around it to understand it because you can apply it in so many facets and how you interact with purchases, how you interact with options of going on vacation, how you interact with going to Disneyland, basically having that basic understanding and kind of, you know, delaying your gratification for later, for a later time when you actually value it more kind of works in your favor. So So, I I quickly want to go into the, to Danny's comments on like it used to be a hype thing, and it's definitely for 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 families that vacation at least once a year. So I think that's it. You you you're able to like save up. Like if you have like a timeshare of a week, you don't go for a year, and then the next year you have two weeks worth of timeshare. So that's an option. But I feel like in some sense the timeshare is similar in demise of popularity as to having a vacation home because it it kind of commits you. To doing something whereas timeshare maybe is a little bit more flexible because you can go to other properties and a vacation home is really you have to go there if you go outside of the city okay yeah we're gonna go to the same one 
you, you can't go to another one unless you put it into the timesharing space. And and I think a valid valid point by Danny. A timeshare is, is not that you actually own that property. Yeah, You're you buying the rights to use to use the property. So I think in that sense, a timeshare is more flexible than having a vacation home. But in the end, it's the same thing. You're basically committing to a certain style of vacation for a, for a, for a vast amount of time. Now that's a nice example of you know having that lower time preference and delaying gratification yeah. to a later time. So to bring us back to the main topic and the, the tail end of the, the topic was, you know, first we define what is money and then the road to financial independence. In the last episode on entrepreneurship, we, we, we talked about the dream of working yourself. So what is it or what does it mean? I'll fix my camera in a second to mm. be financially independent. And so, why are so many people flocking to it with this popular so, fire movement? No, so I think I think the main reason for financial independence is is quite easy. The main reason for financial independence is that we want more freedom. Like we don't want to be constrained that the amount of money that we earn kind of defines what we're able to do. We want to be free in deciding what we do with kind of yeah, what with our money. And there's a certain threshold. The threshold is to be set approximately around 60,000 US per year, if I remember correctly. Yeah, but that's also basically decided on where you live and your lifestyle. Yeah, I mean, okay, if if, (laughs) if you're living in New York or in LA, that won't be be enough. Just rent will will kind of kill you off and and food and, and... just regular daily. If you go to Indonesia with that same amount, you're living. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it's so. And then if you if you're if you live in Suriname and earn five thousand US a month, like net income, I mean, there's really not much you need much more in the world. There's there's really not. So, like from that example, it's basically financial independence. It's like okay, I can freely move and do what I really want instead of having to make decisions whether or not I'm financially stable enough to take to make that decision. And now I want to know it from your side. How how if if you look from financial so would you you already mentioned that it depends on where you live in the world, but to what extent do you feel like there is such this thing as financial independence? I think you hit it right on a nail there. And that goes hand to hand in what you value, right? And a lot of people want that freedom, that flexibility, or they want that peace of mind to be able to work on a specific project that's close to their heart to create a certain impact, for example. And one popular movement, for example, is the FIRE movement, which is financial independence, retire early. So they want to they work as hard as possible in the early years to accumulate as much as possible so they can retire and basically do the things they actually want to do when they hit their 40s, 50s, for some even 30s. And But how easy is that? Easy is very relative. So it's about defining first what does your... in 
you know, your financial independent life look like? Yeah. So, so what I really want to know is, does this, does, does the financial source dry down if you stop working on it? I think that's one, because like one of the things I've talked about is passive income, right? Yeah. And, and at a cert, to a certain extent, I mean, that's lovely, but on the other extent, it dries up quicker than ever. Like yeah. if you're known within a field and you're making money from something, so if you don't spend time on it, your sales is going to dry up. And I think this is one of the things that is it's not talked about enough that it's like you can't. You can retire early, but your sources are going to dry up. Yeah, so th- that's the thing. You need to be able to project it into a low time preference. And, and we talked about efficiency, right? Briefly before, it's all about efficiency and how you're going to allocate that and what does one your financial independent lifestyle look like, but also how long can it last if you have accumulated. And... I would say you don't necessarily need to spend a lot of time on that, but you need to be efficient and very realistic and practical about it. You can spend as much as two hours a month, two hours a month on, you know, focusing on that part and, and planning it out, but being consistent with it and staying within your means and plans of that, of that lifestyle. Then you'll outlast, then you'll have the freedom you want. But that's the tricky part. People can't do that usually. They so have the can people do that. The it, it, it's it's just So an example. How human what's, nature what's good... as in one is habits and also that time preference. So that those are two things. It's very hard to remain consistent. You know all about this. It doesn't matter if it's with money, it doesn't matter if it's with writing. <laughs> It doesn't matter if it's making YouTube videos. It is very hard to stay consistent. If you're going to the gym, there are times when you kind of burn out maybe, but then it comes back to the system. We've talked about atomic habits. That consistency is key in, in overcoming that, if you ask me. And then the second part is having that low time preference to kind of be able to transfer your current needs or, or not your immediate ones into later higher value use cases. But I also feel like accumulating wealth is much more fun. Well, like for, well, so, yeah, that, that, that's, <laughs> that, that, that is debatable. Okay. So, so for instance, like what is, what is a reasonable amount of a percentage that you would get if you would bring a million, a million dollars to the bank, what's, what's the rate going to be? How much are you gonna? We're talking about U.S. dollars. So if if you can bring a million dollars to U.S. Yeah. U.S. dollar to a bank, it doesn't matter which bank in the world. Yeah. If it's here, first are they gonna accept it? One, but other than that, if you're gonna put it into a savings account to get yeah. more, it's gonna be point twenty five percent, less than one percent. Twenty five percent. Yeah, less less than one percent. Whereas the inflation. So rate what happened with about a three, 3%. four, and five percent? What happened with a seven percent? It's basically the rates that the, this is a side topic, but basically. So if you bring a million dollars, no, no. If you bring a million dollars to the bank, every year your payout. The interest on that. The interest will be two and a half thousand. 
Yeah, whereas the inflation... Two and a half dollars? In all seriousness, what? That is the reality, which is why saving in a bank is basically totally bust, if you ask me. Yeah, we could it's... definitely dive into that. <laughs> that <laughs> different convo. convo. So, so if you're interested in wanting to learn hear more about it, we're definitely open to that possibility. But we have reached the time limit for this episode, which is quite interesting because this is, as you know, Chanuk, you mentioned in the beginning, you don't really consider yourself understanding of it. But by virtue of having this conversation, it's also already a step way ahead of many people because they avoid the conversation head on and just spend as they get. So you don't need to be an expert in it to be able to apply it to your life. There's several reasons for that. And I have a certain fear for throwing money away. So I don't have a high time preference because having a high time preference would make me make terrible financial decisions. So I think that's, so for, for people who are similar like me, we had a discussion on the MBTI test with our team, or with a couple of my colleagues. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm very intuitive and perceiving and even feeling, which means that money talks, but mine only says goodbye. So finding say, ways. Say, say that again. Yeah. <laughs> say that again. So when I was, this was around the same year that I was in the U.S. in 96, I bought a couple of stickers that you can post on your door of your bedroom. And one of them said, money talks, but mine only says goodbye. It's basically spending. <laughs> yeah. So I know I have a hole in my hand. So I just don't put any money in my hand. That's good if you know about yourself, right? Yeah. And that comes back to habits. But that's a good place. That's a nice thing to think about. Money talks, but mine says goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) So which end of the spectrum do you want to be? It's up to you. And there's no right or wrong answer. But it's important to be conscious about it and not complain about it. And, you know, how are you going to leverage that little knowledge just understanding to your advantage, to your freedom, to your ability to do things you love, to your ability to create an impact in the world. So that's the last thing I want to say. So for thank you for tuning in. If you tuned in and listened to this or watched this complete episode, feel free to reach out to us on Confos on Instagram. Follow us on Instagram, Confos, and send us a DM about whether or not you're high or low time preference, and what's your biggest challenge is when it comes to money or finding financial independence. We would love to have you back next time. We'll be back next time. And don't forget that all streaming episodes will be available on your streaming platforms and also on Confos.com. This has been Social Confos. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you back next week. Same place, same time. Bye.